All right. Ready? Yep. Welcome to the Radical Bureaucrat, a podcast for people who want to change institutions from the inside. Today is Wednesday, May 13th. I'm Abram Guerra. I'm Sam Rosaldo, and this is our season finale. Um, Sam, this has been such a journey. I had no idea that we would even be able to do a season like this uh, yeah. with the quick turnaround and the so many cool guests. Um, and here we are. Here we are at the end. Um, and it feels wild. Like, we really just did that. That really just happened. I know. Thank you, Sam, because it wouldn't happen without you. You're really the heart of a lot of this. Well, thank you, Abram. Uh, did, I'm I'm proud of both of us, but um, I'm especially proud of you. I should say, I, uh, and and it's it, this for listeners. Um, this is absolutely a team effort, uh, and you know, Abram, you just really like followed through quickly and uh, did so much of the back end stuff that that people don't think about to to get these episodes out quickly. So. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and it's been such a healthy space for us, too. Uh, I think we, we both have talked a lot about that, so, so thank you. All right. Thanks, Sam. I'm really excited about today's episode, so we're going to end the season by coming back to this uh, theme just for a moment, grief, uh, that we've been talking about. And specifically, we're going to talk about uh, some very personal grief uh, about you, Sam, and your family around a specific loss. Is that, isn't that right? Yeah. And so uh, appropriate that we have the ice cream truck playing in the background. <laughs> I, I wish I could come up with a segue from the ice cream truck to, to grief, but I don't have it. Um, but the, uh, the ice cream trucks are out in New York. There was actually a piece in the Times today about how they're performing an important service. Mm -hmm. um, but so if you hear that, if you're somewhere else and you don't know what that is, that's Mr. Softy, everybody. So let's get into it. Today, we're talking about my mother's death. And we have my father on to talk about it. So here's the background. My parents, Renato Rosaldo and Michelle Zimbalist Rosaldo, were cultural anthropologists who did their field work in the northern Luzon area of the rural Philippines. They spent two years there in the late 60s and another year there in the early 70s. In August of 1981, when I was a month shy of my fifth birthday and my brother had just turned one year old, the four of us left California with the intent of spending two years in the Philippines. Two months later, while we were staying in the Ifugao region, my mother died when she fell off a cliff in a hiking accident. And we've talked some uh, on this podcast about what David Kessler calls the sixth stage of grief, which is making meaning. There's acceptance, but then there's making meaning. And for me, one of the meanings that I've derived from my mother's death is that all the life lessons I've learned about death and grief that have, have really informed so much of my perspective uh, and has made me more present for people in times of death and grief um, is a big meaning for me. And, and so much of that, what I learned has come from both the example and the teachings of my father. 
Yeah, and lest you think that podcasts are just an opportunity for men to talk to each other, um, I should also mention that uh, Renato, besides being Sam's dad, is an internationally recognized cultural anthropologist and poet. Uh, as an anthropologist, anthropologist, he's well known for advocating for the importance of both the ethnographer's own cultural perspective, which is a pretty radical idea in anthropology, as well as the indigenous perspective in the work. He has infused his ethnographer sensibility into his poetry, calling what he writes anthropoesia. This really came alive when he wrote a book of poetry about the death of his wife, Sam's mom, who we've been talking about here, uh, called The Day of Shelley's Death. Renato, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And I want to say one quick thing before we jump to our first question, too, um, that the work that my dad does and, and where I'm, I am now, I, I always have to acknowledge both uh, my birth mother, but my dad remarried. Uh, and I have an adopted mother who formerly adopted my brother and I. And she's a part of this work. And, and we want to uh, we're always careful to, to be inclusive when we're talking about our family union uh, of her. Um, and my younger sister, uh, who's, you know, technically my half-sister, uh, but is, I, I think of as my full sister. So just so we have the background on, on the family unit here. Go ahead, Abram. Sorry. So I know we're going to get into the story uh, and your experience, Renato. Uh, but before we jump into that, we started asking people on the podcast, uh, just how have you been doing? And then when we shifted to grief, we started asking people, what are you grieving in this current crisis? Like what has this crisis done to your life that causes grief? And so I'll ask you the same question. What, what has come up for you during the crisis in terms of loss and grief? Well, what's come up is strange because often I don't quite know what the trigger was but I know that it's grief because I'm sobbing. Mm. I just start sobbing and sobbing. I can't stop. And then one way I know it's grief is that I, I remember reading an anthropologist who said, uh, people uh, go into mourning and feel sad. And I said, and feel sad? Are you kidding me? Have you got any idea? <laughs> Have you got any idea at all? And the way that I knew that the that what I was experiencing was grief was because I went into a rage, just a rage, and I was sobbing and raging, and I, mm. you know, and I, and my target was Donald Trump. I said the guy's a mass murderer. He's not doing his job, and uh, and I, and then I realized, well, the target is larger than Donald Trump. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's Donald Trump, and 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 what happens is that all the grief that's there wells up, and so so it's there's a kind of cumulative effect in a reservoir. And let me add one more thing that I found that I, I found that um, in, in this grief that I uh, that I was helped ex extremely much by a psychotherapist. 
used and by counseling I was getting. And one of the reasons a good psychotherapist, a good counselor can be so helpful is there there's certain regularities to the process of grief. And he, he would call it grief work. And that they had certain whiz, bits of wisdom to give you. And the grief work, if you then think, well, what am I doing? I'm doing grief work. Oh, you asked for a year off from your job. I did, and I got it. And so then people say, well, what are you doing? I would say to myself, I'm doing grief work. It's a full-time job. Right. And, I, and I allowed myself to be open to it fully. And when I was with this counselor, uh, he told me some extremely life-changing things that helped me process it. And one thing was that... Um, I would feel like high voltage was running through me. When, uh, when I was experiencing grief, I'd feel like I was plugged into, a, I was getting electrocuted. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I'd feel this voltage moving through my body. And, it, and I was terrified. I said, my God, this is gonna kill me. I, I can't do this, this is too hard to do. And the, the person I was seeing, the counselor said, no, it will not kill you. It will not. What you have to do is put yourself totally at ease. You have to relax completely. You have to be confident that this is not going to kill you. The best way to deal with that high voltage is let it flow, let it move through you. And the only way it'll go away is if you don't tense up and you don't try to block it. Uh, another thing that the uh, counselor said that was very wise, his name was Bill Weber, uh, is he said, remember this, there are three chief mourners. The chief mourners are you, your son Sam, and your son Manny. And a light went on. I said, oh, he said, you have to be the chief mourners in the community of grievers. Uh, and don't think that your job is to talk to adults. They're not the chief mourners. The, in the case of this particular death, the chief mourners are your son, Sam, and your son, Manny, and yourself. And the three of you have to be communicating. Mm -hmm. Manny couldn't speak at that time. So I couldn't have a conversation with Manny, but I would talk to him. I would tell him what was going on, what was happening to me. I would tell him what happened. And, and I... I didn't worry about whether he was understanding or not, because I knew he was understanding the tone, the feeling, what was at stake. He was getting it. And it was much more important and rewarding for me to be talking to Manny than to some of my friends who'd never had a major loss. 
I want to respond to a couple of things that you said. I think that one of the gifts that I, I got from the way that you grieved was being able to talk about it. You know, that yeah. I learned that it was okay to talk about it to the extent that I actually like to talk about my mother's death. Like I like to share it with people. It's not something I shy away from. Uh, it's, I've learned that it's a way for people to get to know me uh, and that in some ways in the right context, it can be helpful to them to hear me talking about it as well. Um, so there's a certain comfort there and, and, and I'm realizing that that's something that I got from the conversations that we had. Uh, another thing that I was really aware of, and you said you treated grieving like a full-time job. Uh, and I always had that awareness of how intensely you focused on your, on your grieving process. And I, I, I saw it, uh, I witnessed it, and, the, and then you also spoke about it a lot. So my first question here is, how did you figure out how to do that? How did you know how to dive in? Number one, that you should dive into the grieving process, and then how you wanted to go about it. Well, I got a lot of coaching from the psychotherapist, right, mm -hmm. on what what were the issues I had to deal with, uh, and what was it I needed to process. And I think that that what I was saying about the high voltage that was moving through me, and to allow it to move, and not to try to block it, was a metaphor for the whole thing for the whole process, which lasted a long time. Um, and I, I think that that was the main way I learned. I also learned because I discovered there was an invisible community of grief. And so I would immediately be able to tell, like I saw a travel agent and I dealt with her for a long time. We, we you know, that was back in the day when you had a travel agent. And she said to me, how are you? And the minute she said that, the way she listened and really meant, how are you now? How, what's happening to you? Uh, I knew she'd been there. I knew she'd had a major loss. So, so I learned how to do it taught by a, this invisible community of the bereaved. Mm. Uh, they were my coaches. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about actually that. So we've talked a lot about the idea of making space for grief on the, on the podcast and privately, this idea of how do we make space for people to feel like it's okay to talk about what they're going through. Um, and, you know, without, without you know, it's, it can be done wrong, right? You can pry about someone's loss and that actually only only hurts, right? So what are some ways do you think that people have made space for the grief that you were facing that were effective or or like, you know, that, that, that stood out to you? Or what are some ways that you create space for other people going through that given that you have this frame of reference and understanding? Well, I think one thing is if, I'll begin with me, what I do for other people. I, I make clear that I really want to know how are they, what's happening to them. And I make clear that I'm not judging and that I don't have a scale that says, your grief is bigger than mine or it's smaller than mine. There's no such scale. You know, you're, you're grieving. 
Okay, it may be your dog, or it may be a miscarriage. It may be something I wouldn't think was worthy of bereavement, but I, I do think it's worthy of bereavement because if somebody's bereaved, they're bereaved, period. Uh, so I think, and then I noticed that people made, sp some people did not make space. And so that I had to uh, learn that. I had to have my antenna out. And so I saw a friend who just had no experience of loss. And he looked at me and he literally turned gray. I said, whoops, he's <laughs> not, not the person not the I need now. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need this. Yeah. And I, I just backed off. I wasn't critical because I said, you know, he uh, he has to deal with this in his own way, but he can't help me. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I thought, uh, you know, that's fine. I just know not to lean on him or count on him. I, I want to ask you about something that then about after the grieving process. Uh, and I'm going to make a connection to one of our interviews that we did. We, we interviewed a friend of mine named Colin Seal about his grandmother's death from COVID-19. And right after her death, he wrote a really sharp and poignant piece about her death and the ways that, like, as you said, this, this administration contributed to her death. Uh, and then we spoke about it on the podcast. After the podcast, he tweeted something that I thought was a really great sentiment. He said, I'm learning how powerful it can be to lean into grief. And I really love that sentiment because he, in really just getting in touch with his feelings and letting them out, he was able to articulate some powerful truths through his writing and then in our, during our interview. Uh, and when I think about leaning into grief, I also think about you, because probably the most widely read anthropological text that you've written is a chapter from your book, Culture and Truth, called Grief and a Headhunter's Rage. And so in that chapter, you articulate how it was only through Shelley's death that you were able to understand the deep rage that justified uh, what they call taking ahead uh, in a society in the Ilongo society that, that included that as a cultural ritual, right? Because they the Ilongos mm. would have considered a, a headhunting society, or and where taking someone's head was actually a thing that happened in grief. But up until then, you had a total misconception of why that would happen or or when taking a head would be justified. And then, uh, in just in this past decade, you know, decades after that, uh, you had this book of poetry called The Day of Shelley's Death, which describes the moments before, during, and after her death from a variety of perspectives. So both of these texts are obviously very different, but I think they're both examples of what Kessler would call the making meaning stage of grief and what Colin would call leaning into grief. Can you talk about your process for both of them? And, I don't want to be careful to say, you know, it's not that Kessler is very clear in saying we don't get, just get to make meaning when we want to. A lot of times people are looking for the meaning very early on while they're in the throes of all these other things. So not to give any, anybody the, the idea that you can just kind of grasp an opportunity in the midst of your grief, but, but somehow you were able to get to that point. Yeah. In the case of the essay on grief in a headhunter's rage, uh, what happened to me was I realized the very strong feelings I was having. 
were rage. And I had had the view that uh, grief is sadness or something, or I didn't have ever, didn't even have that articulated a view. Um, and then I just started feeling this overwhelming rage. Uh, and I started having fantasies of beheading an insurance salesman who was trying to tell me that Shelley's death was not job related. I'm mm -hmm. like, what? You know, right. You don't get life insurance for this, right? <laughs> yeah. And I said, "Was well, we were doing field work? That's the that's in the job description." Yeah, right. And I just got more and more angry. Yeah. <laughs> and what was happening was I was paying attention mm. to what was going on, and I wasn't mm. saying, "Stay away! You don't belong here!" or "This is not what grief is," or "This is not a legitimate feeling." I was just paying attention whatever feelings came up. And I was noticing even after that, as I was writing, that I would uh, kind of blur out. I would be trying to focus on the writing and then I, other stuff would come into my head. And what I learned to do was to honor those feelings, whatever they were. Stop, you know, don't feel you have to, you're, you're being paid by the minute to write. Mm. I'm not. That I can stop and notice what are my daydreams, what's coming up. And so what I would do is just stop, kind of inspect those feelings as they came up, and sometimes even make notes on them, what, what's going on with me. And... I learned that that was the best way to write. It looked like a waste of time, but far from it, because of the process I was going through, I needed to deal with and recognize and honor those feelings. So it was, and I had, I remember I was keeping a journal and I wrote in the journal and said, if I ever return to anthropology, by writing Grief and a Headhunter's Rage. I had a title before I had an article. Mm -hmm. and, and I said if, that that was almost like my initi initiation into anthropology. And what I had to express was a deep dissatisfaction, even anger, at how anthropologists were writing about what they called mourning. They didn't even call it grief or much less uh, bereavement, but they, they, they were writing about it in a way that I thought was mechanical. That's such a powerful word uh, on like just self-reflection yeah. and introspection. Um, and I think uh, cult culturally uh, and certainly in the workplace, um, which we talk a lot about the workplace on the podcast yeah. and how we yeah. treat Places that are humanizing yeah that's not really being mindful of emotions is not really the way that we operate um, <clears throat> it is however very much in in harmony with what a lot of teachers spiritual teachers and a lot of different traditions have taught 
about paying attention to what yes. you're thinking and you're feeling, right? The Buddha says, watch the ways of the mind because they lead to actions, they lead to habits, etc. right? And I, you know, I could probably quote a handful of other ones, but the point is that this idea of really examining oneself and, and being clear with yourself about what you're feeling and what you're going through, even to the point where you can say, I don't know, but I know that I'm feeling this intensity of something, right? Of rage, of, of whatever you know, that, that is so hard to make space for when we feel like we're being paid by the word. We're being paid by the email. We're being paid by the phone call. It, it, it sets up uh, a real antithesis to the way things are done normally. And I think it's such a powerful word of advice. Processing how you're feeling, thinking about how you're feeling, why something bothered you, thinking carefully about what you're going to say next time you see that person or talk to someone about this issue that bothers you, thinking through uh, the, the uh, sources of where these feelings are coming from, what is, what is the powerlessness I'm feeling or whatever, like that is work, that is legitimate work, you know, yeah. like that's not the kind of work that we legitimize with punching clocks, right, and time cards for, um, but if we don't do our work, we're not going to be able to sustain the other work that we're doing, whether right. that's writing or teaching or anything else. Yeah, um, and right. so I think it's such a powerful example to, to, to say, I did it and I sat with it and let myself feel all the whole thing and didn't let myself get distracted away from it. I think that's a powerful word about how to deal with it. So I know you've, um, written some poems on this topic, on other topics, and you know I, we would we would love the chance to hear uh, some of your poems on the podcast if you'd be willing. I will do it, and I'm going to. Yeah, I'll preface them. I'll do a, a small set of poems. Stop me if I'm going on too long. Okay. Ah, easier said <laughs> than done. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, one sets the scene. It's the first poem, it's short, boom. Silence, subtract from the village hum. A pestle pounding grains of rice. The swoosh of a winnowing tray. Rice bubbling on the fire. Chickens clucking in the yard. Soft voices of women at work. Bird songs stop. Conchita Kumaldi arrives. Don't panic, she says. So, and of course, if somebody tells you, don't panic, what do you do? Panic. <laughs> <Yeah>. Panic. <laughs> what do you mean, don't panic? Don't panic about what? <laughs> <laughs> right. Do I have a reason to panic? <laughs> yeah. Now, this is a poem that was the first poem that, uh, it's the poem that opened the book of poems of the day of Shelley's death out to me. And I should say that one thing you need in a lot of this radical bureaucrat work is a community, a, a circle of friends, a group, some people you rely on some who are mentors, some who are friends, but just some companions in your journey. And I wrote a version of the, the poem I'm about to read, and, it, uh, and people said, it has too many characters. And there were a lot of characters in it. 
It's a, too many characters. And then the person who was convening the group, a teacher named Patricia Spears Jones, said to me, who are these people? And I and I we went down them one by one. And each one I had a spiel. I had something to say. I said, "This person's really important. He can't not be here." <laughs> and she said, "You know the problem is, you have not a poem. You have a book of poems, and you have to decide whether you want to write that book or not." because it's going to be a rough ride. And so I thought, oh my God, she opened the whole thing out just by saying that. And I thought, what a, what, what a gift from a mentor there. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so this poem I was wanting, uh, my son, who's not Sam, who's Manuel, Manny, I wanted to explain to him how I knew that he knew Shelley had died, even when he couldn't, when he didn't have any speech, right? He couldn't say, I know, Dad, I know what's happening. How do I, Renato, know that Manny knows? That morning in Mungayang, Manny shoots vomit in a straight line across the room. We toss a coin. Tales I stay. Shelley walks with Conchita. Day one of our ethnographic survey. Manny babbles, saying gibble, gibble, happily cooing. Then he abruptly screeches, a piercing sound that ricochets through the dark wooden hut, penetrating like a mouse that scurries across smooth brown planks. Conchita steps in the hut, says, don't panic. Takes me to the place where Shelley stumbled from a precipice to the swollen brown river. When I return and hug Manny, my trembling touch fails to reassure him. Bags packed quickly. Conchita's cousin lifts Manny onto her back. He sobs low and long. She collapses. I put Sam on my shoulders, walk the steep hill to Lagawe. The next day, a priest drives Manny, Sam, and me down to the Magat Valley, hot, hotter, then up a winding mountain road, cooling, cooler. Manny grows giddy, giggling intensively, insistently. In Baguio City, I carry him into our apartment. He searches, swivels, nobody here. He bellows and shatters the enormous, thick silence. Wow, thank you for that. Yeah. I love that poem, and it is, yeah. I mean, it's obviously deeply personal. Um, yeah. I'm in it, and I, and I remember things in that poem. I remember the day, because I, I think we were both sick, right, Dad? Um, yeah. Um, but I guess Manuel had, had vomited like that 
And so I remembered that there were, you guys had to make a choice about who was going to go that day. Um, I remember the shoulder ride because I remember you telling me that Shelly had died while I was on your shoulders on that path up the hill. I, mm. I waited until then because I thought that was your safe space. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I remember the first time you told me about that experience of going back to the apartment in Pagio City and, and your trepidation because Manuel was getting excited to see her and you knew what yeah. he was getting excited for and then not seeing her in the, I mean, just that, that moment, like whenever, when you told me about that memory long before you wrote the book, I mean, it just, it blows me away, but, but there's something about, it's so sad. And yet that poem is such a gift because it's like a release. It's, it, and it's yeah. um, these crystal clear memories, uh, this kind of way of making sense of everything and piecing it together and, and I have the benefit now of knowing what our lives have been since then, right? I'm not in it anymore. Yes. Uh, you can say, how how did this story go in the next chapter? Yeah, yeah. You I know benefit. what the next chapter is. Uh, but it's still, it, I mean, the sadness is, is there. It doesn't take away, but it's, uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah, let me do a poem. It's in the voice of a tricycle taxi driver. So the, the I in the poem, when I do this, is the tricycle taxi driver, not myself. The tricycle taxi driver. Please accept my gift, I say. In Lagawe, I own the only tricycle taxi. Orange, yellow, red, fresh paint, curving lines. Afternoon. The soldiers arrived breathless, say an American woman fell from the precipice near Mungayang. At dusk they arrive, Ifugaos, a few men, two women. One carries the baby of the American woman in a yellow backpack. I shall be the one. In a rattan hammock tied to a pole, Ifugao men bring the woman's body. The American man shoulders his five-year-old son, his walk heavy, shirt soaked, face streaked with dirt, his tears behind red eyes. Then he mumbles, taxi, and steps toward me. I've come here to give him a ride. He places his two sons on the seats, then sits between them, offers to pay. Please accept my gift, I say. Yeah, thank you. Um... I feel I didn't accept his gift until I wrote and then read this poem. Mm. That's when it sank in what what he had given me. Yeah. You know, he sat and waited for me to arrive and for Sam and Manuel to arrive and Yeah. And he wanted to give me that and that's his living, you know. He's not doing that for fun. Yeah, it's these moments where we uh 
extend care to each other, even as strangers, that I think are, are what makes us human. You know, yeah. and I'm, yeah. you know, a lot of people say a lot of things makes us human, right? But, but I think these, our ability to empathize, to see the suffering of another, to love them and extend care to them as fellow sufferers in the human condition. That yes, is right fundamental. And, and that's the fundamental thing. And, and when we don't do that, when we instead choose to crowd out those human parts of people with whatever, with work or with uh, arguments or whatever, when we crowd out that human loving each other and caring each other, I think we, we lose our own humanity in the process. You know, again, talking yeah. about the work, the workplace place prim primarily is what Sam and I talk about. Um, you know, as, as managers or leaders creating spaces where people don't feel like they can say how they feel or changing, changing that dynamic so that people do feel like they can say how they're feeling um, and legitimizing that as the work that we need to do in order to do the work that we that we want to do together. Right. Um, it's very challenging. It's very antithetical. And I, and I appreciate so much your modeling, both of experiencing that and remaining one person making sense of it all. And the way that you highlight in the last poem that our kindness to each other is everything in times like this. And can you imagine that guy had never seen me, right? <laughs> he just heard what happened and waited. And he had a gift. And he had an offering, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, Dad, uh, thank you so much. Uh, we want to ask you what we ask all of our guests before we go, which is what is bringing you a sense of calm in the midst of this storm? Well, I think what's giving me a sense of calm is actually occasionally it, it's varied a lot because it's been kind of two months of turbulence around me and in me. Uh, and at first, it was being able to write a set of poems uh, that I've been writing on injury and then I've been writing. And then it's been uh, the recognition that things have become simpler and slower mm. and kind of savoring that and, and being present to it and inhabiting it. And as you know, uh, your mom and I got stranded in Oakland. We mm -hmm. weren't planning on this. So we had one suitcase. Mm -hmm. We've been living out of one suitcase for two months mm -hmm. and We've been, we have a shelf that I call our Safeway shelf, and that's uh, cans of beans and soups and various things. So, and we've been using a rice cooker and a microwave, and then we got a hot plate recently. But most of the time it was just those two items. And somehow we've, we, uh, I look forward to our every meal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 
just being together. So I'm very grateful for small things. So it, it's just being present to a slow down pace, uh, the warping almost of the other linear high speed time uh, and just being very appreciative and grateful for uh, what your mom and I have been doing here. That's great. Yeah. Well, have meals together. That's the that's the takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, and appreciate the little things. Appreciate right? the there's thing. so many little yeah. things. So I just want to say okay. once more uh, that we really really appreciate this time and um, and I love you. And, and I'm so grateful for you for, for sharing all these things. Thank you. I love you too, Sam. I'm so grateful for this podcast in the middle of packing because we're flying back to New York tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Stay safe. It was nice talking. Good talking to you, Avram. So let's end Thank like you. good radicals. Uh, what's one thing that you learned today, Sam, that you can use to create a more just and equitable world? Uh, you know, I thought that you really um, did did a nice job of of synthesizing some of the things that my dad was saying. And uh, one thing that you said was uh, the importance of just of kindness and being present and being there for other people and and creating space for people to express their feelings. Uh, one thing that a school counselor, a friend of mine, said to me that, uh, a couple of days ago when we were texting, she said that so many teachers in her school are, are pushing this idea of grit and, and turning a negative into a positive. And, uh, and that just feels like not, that, that's one way of pushing away the feelings, as much as people might not even realize that they're doing it, right? To, to try to get somebody to, to get in a positive mindset when they're in the midst of grief, uh, no matter what it is they're grieving. So um, I, I think that's, that's what I'm, I'm sitting with. What about you, Abram? Yeah, uh, for sure that um, resonates. Um, I think for me, I'm, I'm sitting with this um, idea of self-reflection and not, you know, not to cheapen whatever kind of grief anyone is going through, you know, there's no right way, but I think grief can be a real power for transformation in a positive way for us. If we allow it to be, it can also be a power for transformation that can really break us. Mm. Um, and I think that the, the difference is in how really introspective and how questioning of our own default ways of being we are, how much we really, ask ourselves, you know, why does this make me so angry? What is the loss? Uh, you know, not unlike our conversation on the last episode, you know, but what is the loss really that's, that's bothering you? Mm. Um, that kind of real uh, reflection, introspection, interrogation um, is how uh, Renato is able to come through those experiences with the word of comfort for others. Mm. Um, and so yeah, I think it gives me uh, a feeling of uh, commitment to, to really want to do that work, that introspective, reflective kind of work in my own life. Yeah. 
All right. Well, this brings us to the end, right? Well, before we go, I want to I make sure to ask our listeners, those of you who are out there who we imagine are listening to us and <laughs> who enjoy the podcast because a few people who have have rated it positively. Um, yeah, follow us uh, on Apple Podcasts so that you can hear uh, new episodes. Also, that Apple Podcasts know we exist because Apple Podcasts is a lot of the podcast game. Uh, and please rate us if you enjoy what you're hearing. Um, please, please give us a rating on iTunes. It makes a huge difference in terms of people being able to hear the message and the word, the words that we're able to share on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to end by being good bureaucrats. The views expressed here are personal opinions and do not reflect the official or unofficial position of any government, agency, policy, party, leader, or really anyone besides the two of us, and maybe you, but maybe not. This content has not been sponsored or approved by anyone and was mostly just made because we wanted an opportunity to talk about things that matter to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone.